even says in Romans, the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. The Jews have always taught that Genesis 3.15 is fulfilled when we walk in faithfulness. Think about it this way. Because when we walk, as we're walking, if the snake's in the grass and tries to snack, strike at our heel, we crush his head because we're walking. You will not crush his head by standing still. in week 16 of, of 24. So we're over halfway, a little over halfway. And uh, for some of you, you're like, oh man, we're over half done? Dang it. For some of you, you're like, we have another half of this series to go. <laughs> I... I I mean, I'm having fun. I don't know. I, I don't know about you guys. I'm having a good time. No, it's been good. We are in uh, the book of Revelation, and what we're doing is looking at John's writing from the perspective of those who first read it. And so, we're we're trying to walk a line of understanding and getting into some of the details, but not getting lost in the details. Um, because especially for us now, with two thousand years of uh, church tradition um, sludge attached to the conversation around Revelation, for some of the, the numbers and the symbols, and all, there's just not a clean answer. Um, and so what I'm trying to do is to walk the line of, hey, we want to explore it, we want to understand it, and what we also want to do is make sure that we're staying in the pocket of things, because I think this book is super relevant for us uh, in the world that we live in today. Uh, I believe that first century Rome is in fact 21st century America. And so um, we are, there's a lot of parallels between what they were facing and what we face and will continue to face in increasing measure as time goes on. And so I, I'm enjoying the book. Uh, John has been inviting us up until this point into this cosmic battle that he has set up as an Olympic type of games. And we've been talking a lot about that. We, he's, he's used a couple of metaphors um, that he's pulled out and that he's been building on. One is the games, and the other is this battle, that we're in this war, and, and we have this decision to make. Are we going to do war the way the world does, power and I walk softly and carry a big stick, or are we uh, to try to build empire, or are we going to wage war the way of the slain lamb? And that's this battle that we're facing, like how we compete tells the world how strong our God is, and that's important. Also, when we compete, we have to compete in a way consistent with the God who we represent. And, and this isn't just John, by the way. Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, he says this, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. We're not this. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. 
the, the weapons that we fight with actually mine out the strongholds in our heart and allow us to let those go and set them free. And I would offer that if that's not happening in your life, then somewhere um, we're not doing war the way of the slain lamb. And we need to take a look at that. We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. By the way, that's not necessarily out there. That's in here. And take every thought captive to obey Christ. Being ready to punish every disobedience when your disobedience is complete. So I'm not punishing your disobedience. I'm punishing my own. I think one of the things that we have to wrestle with in the way of the slain lamb is that when I look in the mirror, there needs to be a disciplined uh, fortitude and focus for my own life. When I look at you, I need to offer liberal grace. This is the way of the slain lamb. So I don't have to compromise my own moral convictions, but I do have to make sure that I'm honoring and loving you the way that God does. Today, we are going to look at another image that John is using to describe this conflict. It's a woman and a dragon. And so John is giving us yet another way to understand this war that we're, that we're in. And so we're going to look at Revelation 12. And basically what we're going to do is work down through the chapter and we'll stop and offer some commentary along the way. Uh, and then we'll keep going. So, Revelation 12, starting in verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns on his heads and seven diadems. Diadems are crowns. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. The, by the way, so much um, theology around... I shouldn't say theology. So much doctrine around who Satan is and what he's like in different denominations is attached to this passage and some of the things that it says. What I would offer is make sure that you do your research on it before you hold to it, okay? I'm just going to offer that. Um, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. So here's the picture is that this woman is in heaven and she's, she's in childbirthing process. She's in agony and there's a dragon that's waiting there for her to give birth so that it can devour the child. Here's the metaphor. One who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. So what we're going to have to wrestle with is who's the woman and who's the child and Who's the dragon? But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness. If you're taking notes, if you're in your real Bible, underline that. She fled into the wilderness, where she had a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Now, last week we looked at 1260 days. How long is that? 
Three and a half years. It's three and a half years. So, good news, it's half of completion. So we have, we have this time, but it's not the final time. It's a period of time, but it comes to an end. We, we have this woman giving birth to a male child who is to rule. Uh, so Christian tradition says that this is Jesus, and I won't argue with that. I, there may be more depth and nuance to that, but I'm, I'm, that's, that's another sermon for another day. I, I, Christian tradition says it's Jesus, and yes, okay, great. And this great red dragon is there because he intends to devour the child, but at the last moment, the child will be swept up into heaven. The dragon is surprised by that, and the woman escapes. Now, the question that I'm going to wrestle with right now is, who is the woman? There are several options, and I'm going to try to give you four that are the good ones. There's a lot of bad ones, but I'm going to give you four options for who she is. So the first one is that it, uh, some people have said that the woman is Mary. Gave birth to Jesus. It's Mary. Makes sense. Um, but the question is, you know, what about the what about the twelve stars on her crown? Like, uh, and then um, you know, twelve is like this number that represents all of God's people. It's representative of the twelve tribes of Israel. But for a Jew, broadly speaking, when they use the number twelve, it's more about like encompassing all of God's people. So that's a little off. Like we would have to say. You know, that probably doesn't fit the metaphor. And then the other piece is the escaping piece into, that she fled into the wilderness. That, that doesn't really fit either, but it could be Mary. But there's a couple of questions with that. The, the second one is, it could be Israel. Israel is called a bride all throughout the Old Testament. Um, the, Israel is the bride of God. And... He says that he led them, Jeremiah 2 says that he led them out into the desert for their honeymoon, which I've been in that desert. I can tell you what my wife would have said if I'd have took her there for my honeymoon. (laughs) Would not have been good. Would not have been good. Um, So we can definitely say that the 12 stars fits. Okay, uh, we can definitely say that Israel gave birth to the Messiah. That fits. Um, the, the escaping into the wilderness, that definitely fits. Um, but what would the application of that be to Revelation? Like that's, that's kind of the, like why that doesn't seem to matter to the book of Revelation itself. So, so that's a question. Um, the, the third option is that it's the church. And that's an option. Um, Twelve stars would still apply. Uh, escaping in the wilderness would, would work. Um, they did that. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. Um, that's certainly what the church does. But to say that the church gave birth to the Messiah, that would be a stretch. That would be a difficult one. I think maybe it's the, the other way around with the church. Does that make sense? So we're wrestling with that. Like, what is that? And I, I would, as we're talking through Revelation, um, I want to offer a PS before we get to the fourth option. Um, 
We've been talking a lot about the persecution of the church. How are we supposed to respond when persecution arises? So before we get to the fourth option of who the woman is, I want to get, give us four options for how the church is supposed to respond to persecution. Two of them are good, two of them are bad. Okay, there's two good options, two bad options. But I, I want to I make sure that we take a look at this because this is one of those really difficult questions that, that I believe in my lifetime we're going to have to wrestle with. Option one on how we deal with persecution. Rome comes and demands that you say Caesar is Lord and you say no. I am willing to die because my testimony is that Caesar is not Lord. And I have built my life on a whole different set of principles and I choose the methodology of the slain lamb. So that's an option. And, and we've been talking a lot about that option. Um, that, that's, we're like, yeah, stand and die. Let's be, you know, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. Um, that's a really hard life. That's a hard life to live. That, you know, Rome comes to knocks on your door and it says tomorrow you have to show up at the, at the gymnasium and offer incense to Caesar as Lord. And you say, I will not. It's a hard decision to make. If it was just me, it would be easy decision to make. But it's looking at my kids saying, hey, you're not going to have a dad anymore. That's a lot more complicated. Option two, which is a bad option. I'm just going to tell you. Violent retribution. We can rise up and go to war. Uh, now, Here's the thing, in, in first century Rome, the Christians didn't have this option. Um, they, they didn't. Beyond the fact that it just logistically was impossible, they weren't enough of a movement for that. But beyond that, that's not the way of the slain lamb. It's for the people of God, fighting back destroys your testimony. This is not the way of the slain lamb. This is the way of Caesar. And we're not going to do that because we become just like him when we do it that way. And you wrestle with how to apply that, but that's not an option in their world. Option three, which is another bad option, is compromise. Just sprinkle the incense. Just do it. This is the, uh, we, we met a group of people at the beginning of Revelation called the Nicolaitans. And I said that we don't know for sure who they are or what they taught, but the best guess on what they were teaching was um, that there was, it was surrounding compromise. That they would say, you know what, just cross your fingers and sprinkle the incense. Like, God knows what's in your heart. Um, he knows that you don't think it's just, I mean, they would say things like, you know, God would want you to be happy, wouldn't he? He would want you, God would want you to live peacefully, wouldn't he? God, God wouldn't want you to have to, God wouldn't want your kids to be raised without a father, would he? And make all these assumptions that lead us to a justification for compromise. And that's just not acceptable. 
And by the way, I think that for us in the room, um, we need to wrestle with this one because American Christianity, this is what we do. We compromise. We wrestle with this question, how much can I get away with and still be a Christian? That's a compromised position. I should, what I should be wrestling with is what does God want and how do I live into that? Not how much can I do and still be okay with God. God loves you. That will never change no matter what you do. So you could do all of the bad things and God would still love you. It doesn't mean you're saved. It just means he's never going to not love you. But that's the wrong question to say, well, what can I do? The right question is, what does God want? What does God want? Here's why it's the right question. Because it puts the emphasis where it belongs, back on God. It's not about me and my desires and my hedonistic tendencies. I am, we are as humans, self-indulgent. Given the opportunity, we will always serve ourselves. And I know that there are people who are like, I just get life from serving other people. That's not serving other people. That's backdoor taking. You're doing it to fulfill your own emotional need. It, we can't, it can't be about what I want. It can't be about what I think. It has to be about what God wants. What does he think? And then the rest of it is just me taking all the obstacles in my life, which are unique person to person to person. Not everybody has the same obstacles, nor does everybody have the same obstacles for the same reason. So we, the, the things that I'm wrestling with and how I lay those down, those are unique person to person. But it's still about letting go of those things so that what God wants can be honored. That's the way of the slain lamb. I lay my life down. Now, here's the fourth option. Run. It, not a joke. The, you know, I was, but we'll get there. I want to show you some pictures. Uh, I want to show you specifically eight photos of a place called Cappadocia. And I've been here uh, a couple of times. A great place. I, it's in Turkey. I don't take my tours here because it literally is um, way away from where, you know, the seven churches are and, and all of that stuff, all of that New Testament area. That's kind of in one section of Turkey. Cappadocia is in a different section of Turkey. But, but here's the thing about Cappadocia. When persecution broke out against the Christians during uh, the Roman rule, they ran to Cappadocia. Now the question is why, okay? So let's take a look at a picture. Um, this is Cappadocia. Mm. Lush. <laughs> the rocks are called tufa, and I am not a geologist. But here's what I know to be true. Now, I'm going to teach you everything that I know about tufa. It's a volcanic ash mixed with water, and the humidity and the wind creates these incredible rock formations. They're, they're just ridiculous. Let's look at the next photo. 
it's, you can see these big like stalagmite looking things coming up out of the ground. Some of them, and then you can drive through parks, this is Google Cappadocia, and, and you'll find just incredible pictures. The, um, there's places where they have uh, rocks that look like two people dancing. Like it's, one looks like a turtle. I mean, it's amazing. It's amazing what these things look like. And you can, car the, the reason that this happens is because the rock is incredibly soft. And so you can carve into it really easy so you can make these underground cities where you can live and hide. Next photo. And so this is what they did. They made these incredible rock formations. Now, I believe, I remember first learning about this in, in my experience in Cappadocia. And I'd just been to the cities of the seven churches and, and we'd been wrestling with how to engage reality that they found themselves. How do we take a stand and how do we be strong and how do we endure and, you know, all of this stuff. And I was like, yeah, 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 fight, come on, be strong, uh, 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 right? And, and, and then... I was completely compelled by that. And my friend and I were having this conversation about the Christians who ran and hid in Cappadocia. And I thought to myself, yeah, I mean, you could do that, but that's the coward's way. Like the real believers stood and died. And it's interesting you know, I, and when I take groups to Turkey, I always invite people like, okay, Christian, put your God on display. I ask this question, I don't know how many times, lots of times. Okay, Christian, put your God on display. How do you do that here with this situation, this context, this God, this opposition? How do you do it? And here's, here's what's interesting to me. No one has ever said what their rabbi said to do. Let's look at the next photo. This is what they did. They, they carved channels down deep into these mountains and literally built cities underground. Now, here's the thing about this. Next, next picture. This is that staircase coming down to the bottom. And they literally lived in these spaces. Here's, they don't have light. You can't burn torches down here because the carbon monoxide will kill you. Like, what do you do? And furthermore, it's not like they can have cows above ground and crops and all that stuff and give away their position. So their animals were in this dark with them. Let's look at the next photo. Here's what happened. These people, they began to... Um, realized that they had to protect the word. And so they, they didn't have it in copy form. And so what they did was they created these churches and there are some stunning churches there. But what they did was they started painting pictures on the ceilings to tell the stories of the scriptures. Now, when I went in my scouting trip for Turkey, for my putting together a Turkey trip, this is how much the Lord loves me. Um, we're, we're out in Cappadocia and we're looking around in this. Uh, we, we come back to have lunch and our guide 
Ozon is his name. Uh, we have guides Ozon and Gokhan, and our bus driver is Hassan. And I told him, I'm Turkish, Aaron. <laughs> I'm Turkish. I didn't know. I didn't know, but I guess I am. So Ozon and, and uh, the two of us are sitting down having lunch. This guy walks by and he starts talking to Ozon. Da, 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 and he said, guys, I got to introduce you to this, to this man. He just did his PhD on the, on the ceiling paintings of the caves of Cappadocia. We were like, we're riddled with questions. So he sits down and like legit like one of the leading experts in the world on the cave paintings of Cappadocia. And he talks all about where, where they came from. And the, each hand position has a, a meaning. Uh, and the, not just the, the fingers and how they're held, but the way that the hand is positioned on the arm. Like it, it all has a meaning. And that meaning is the point of the story, whether it's faith or grace or hope or joy or something like that. And so they, what they did was they preserved the word that Rome was trying to destroy. Now, Ultimately, several hundred years of that, and they began to add stories of other great uh, people, not biblical stories, but stories of people who, just testimonies of people who did great things, and they also added those. And without the, the word as the sacred um, book that it is, all of these stories started to become kind of equal. And then what they did was they started to elevate these just men and women. This is where saints come from. Make sense? This is how, the, the, this is how it started to happen, right? But the, they ran and they hid. And, and, and initially, as I'm thinking, I'm like, they're weak. But here's the thing. What did Jesus say for us to do? A couple more pictures. One more picture, I think, right? Of this picture, another church that was carved into, and I think we have one more. This is another city with the rock formations in it. You can see what they did. This is how they lived. It was hard. It was hard for them to do this. And I would imagine that every day, every one of them wanted to just give up, come up out of the darkness, sprinkle incense and go home. That would have been so much easier. Here's what Jesus said to do. Matthew 10, 23. This is what Jesus said. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Like Jesus says, when you face persecution, don't stand and die. That's what a man would do. Run. That's what Jesus said to do. By the way, it's also what the woman does in Revelation. And I just think that maybe we need to consider from this perspective, it's not really about whether I choose to stand and be strong and fight and give the world my testimony as a martyr so that they can endure, or I'm, I decide to, be, to run and protect and preserve the word and keep it. By the way, like you can call them cowards, but you and I can trust the Bible that we read today because of them. Like we owe them a debt of gratitude. They served, it's not whether I think I should do this or this. It's what does God call me to? What does God want? Where's God in this? 
Man, if we could just leverage that and stop trying to get into our own wants and desires in life, we'd be miles ahead of the game. Should I be married or single? I don't know. What does God want for you? What does God want? We just assume that we're are just like in the church, especially marriage is like a trophy. And if somebody comes in and they're in their 30s and they're not married, we go, what's, what's wrong? Divorced, huh? Like we make all these assumptions about this stuff and we don't celebrate like maybe God's called them to singleness. And even if they're like, I don't really want to be single. Well, maybe, but that doesn't change. What does God want? Like we don't wrestle with that question in our life. Should I take this job promotion? I don't know. What does God want? What does God want? These people in Cappadocia lived a very difficult life to preserve a faith that I take for granted. And and after wrestling with that, I actually came to really respect that position. It wasn't like they left and ran for an easier life. It was, in many ways, much more difficult to live that way. I can truly respect those who chose to stand and die for their faith. I can, but I also can truly respect those who ran and preserved, like this passage offers. Let's get back to our four options. We have Mary, we have Israel, we have the church. Could be any one of those for who the woman is. Here's option four. She could be Eve, like of Adam and Eve. And, and I know if you, here's the thing. Be, put your Jewish, put your kippah on for just a minute. And, and think about it. Like if you're, if you're steeped in the text and you hear about a woman who gives birth to a child and there's a serpent involved in it where does your mind immediately go Genesis 3 absolutely it goes to Genesis 3 by the way that should be super significant because in Genesis 3 in that section we have the first what we call the prophecy of the Messiah, right? That, that she will bear a son and this snake will strike at his heel, but he will crush his head. That's in Genesis 3. So this may be uh, this woman and the child and the escape and the dragon, which is going to be called a serpent here in just a little bit when we get there. But maybe all of that is tied to John's calling. But, uh, but the, the question is, you know... Um, I mean, I still have a lot of questions, but um, maybe that's it. Maybe that's it. So we have these four options. It could be Mary. Could be. Could be Israel. Could be. Could be the church. Or could be Eve. These are probably your four best options for who this woman is. Um, I'll let you choose which one you want, um, but I'm right. Uh, I'm not telling you which one I think it is. Revelation 12, because continue in Revelation 12. It says, now a, a war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but were defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And a great dragon was thrown down, thrown down. And ancient serpent, that ancient serpent who was called the devil, and Satan. Now, what serpent 
what ancient serpent was called the devil and Satan? Serpent in the garden, right? Not in the passage, but Jesus is going to later refer back to him as that. Uh, the deceiver of the whole world, he's thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. Thrown down. I'm emphasizing that both times because um, we may come back to it. Who accuses them day and night before our God. So what is Satan's job with the children of God? He accuses them day and night. Have any of you ever felt inadequate in your walk with God? That's Satan's job. That's Satan's job. Just know that when you feel inadequate in your walk with God... Um, let me rephrase that. When you feel bad about being inadequate in your walk with God, like we are inadequate. You with me? I am wholly incapable of becoming, outside of the power of the Holy Spirit working in my life, of becoming what God wants me to be. I can't do it on my own. And so when I feel inadequate about being inadequate, that's Satan's chirping in my ear. And I can look at him and, well, no, you didn't. <laughs> that was a deep cut. All right. <laughs> For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. Thrown down. Who accuses them day and night before our God, and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. So the, the blood of the lamb... And the word of their testimony. Man, I would love to preach that sermon. But I don't have time. Like what is it that gives us power in the world? The blood of the lamb. And the word of our testimony. How we're putting God on display. Not by the way what we believe to be right and wrong. But how we represent Jesus in the world. For they love not their lives, even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you will dwell in them. But woe to you, earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. Now, the dragon is described as Satan. He's expressed in the form of Rome for the readers of this. It, the dragon is Satan. Anybody who works for the dragon is called a beast. We'll pick this up next week because we're going to look at the beast of land and sea. Um, this is not the first time, by the way, that this has happened. For the Jewish readers of this book, this is not the first time that this has happened. The, this happened with Babylon. It happened with Assyria. It happened, it, it happened. Any time that a great leader tries to rise up and build his own empire, this is what happens. Tyre and Sidon. Now, by the way, I always wondered, remember, remember all the backstory about um, Satan? He was a worshiper, worship leader in heaven. And then he got thrown down. Thrown down. And all this stuff about Satan, all this information. And I, and I always wondered growing up, like, where do they get that stuff? Because, like, where does that come from? It, 
It comes from two passages in the Bible. One is Isaiah 14, and the other one is Ezekiel 28. Um, I'm only going to, I only have time to read one today, and I don't technically even have time for that, but I'm going to take it. Um, these are the two passages, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. These are the two passages that we get the backstory on who Satan was. Where did he come from? You know, he, he wanted God's seed and it doesn't work and he gets thrown down. The problem is neither of these passages actually talk about Satan. The passages tell us who they're talking about. In Isaiah, he's talking about the king of Babylon. So all these descriptors that we attach to the backstory of Satan actually, read Isaiah 14.1. It's about the king of Babylon. It says that's what it's about. So is it Satan or is it the king? Unless maybe Satan is manifested in the king. But in Ezekiel, it's the king of Tyre. And, and it's going to say so twice just to make sure that we don't lose who it is. Ezekiel's going to say it twice who it's about. So Satan manifests himself through the imperial powers of their day. That's the only way that this can correlate. But Ezekiel 28, I want to read this so that you can get a picture. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, say to the prince of Tyre. Who? Thus says the Lord God, because your heart is proud and you've said, I am a God. Which, by the way, is nothing new. All the kings, especially in the pagan empires, all thought, acted as gods. I sit in the seat of the gods in the heart of the seas, yet you are but a man and you and no God, though you make your heart like the heart of a God. You are indeed wiser than Daniel. Are you you are indeed wiser than Daniel? No secret is hidden from you by your wisdom and your understanding. You've made wealth for yourself and have gathered gold and silver into your treasuries. By your great wisdom in your trade, you have increased your wealth and your heart has become proud in your wealth. Which, by the way, very Tyre-esque lore. Um, the, uh, they used the seas. It was right on the coast um, and they used the seas to build their empire into a mass wealth. Uh, therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you make your heart like the heart of a God, therefore, behold, I will bring foreigners upon you the most ruthless of the nations, and they shall draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. They shall th thrust you down. Guess what that says in the Hebrew? Throw down. You shall be thrown down. Why did I emphasize it? Why? Because John is pulling on these pictures. He's pulling on these pictures. Into the pit, and you shall die the death of the slain in the heart of the seas. You, you, will you still say, I am a God, in the presence of those who kill you, though you are but a man, and no God in the hands of those who slay you? You shall die the death of the uncircumcised by the hand of the foreigners, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre. Said it again just to make sure that we know who this is, and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Remember, this is the language that we use to describe who Lucifer was. You were in Eden. Ah, ha, 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 see? See? It's about the snake. It's about the serpent. It's about Satan. <laughs> Except it's not. <laughs> it's about the king. It just said it twice. 
The garden of God, every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle. <laughs> what a cool name. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. By the way, this is all used to describe who Lucifer was before he fell. On the day that you were created, they were, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you... Uh, you were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. Uh, in the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God and destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom. By the way, you're like, this all describes Satan. This is all stuff that's been used to describe Satan. He was so beautiful, he became full of himself. Uh, you corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to, the feast, to feast their eyes on you by the multitude of your iniquities. In the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuary, so I brought fire out from your midst. It consumed you, and I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you, and all who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to, be a, to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. The, this passage that's used to describe the king of Tyre is, seems to be that it's bouncing between the king of Tyre and something greater than that. So here's why this matters. John, what's its relevance to Revelation? John is giving the readers a call back to like, don't forget Satan, the serpent, the one who was thrown down. Thrown down. When we talk about a great king who went up to heaven to wage war and was thrown down, any Jewish reader is going to think about Isaiah and Ezekiel. These passages talk about these empires that dare to defy the way of shalom and wholeness and what happens to them. So if you're reading this in the first century about this dragon and this woman who's given birth and the dragon's there to devour this baby, but the baby gets whisked up, why? you're thinking, yes, I know where this is going and I know how this ends. Good work, John. And again, I'm drawn to say in this space for just you and me that I need to know my Old Testament text better. Because that's what John is using to make his case. Instead of thinking about the great war sometime in the future, I'm drawn back to the fact that there's always been a great war. It always has been. It is today and it will happen in the future. But we are part of something today. This war is going on today. And for the first readers, it was going on for them today. In that day. Now let's keep going in Revelation 12. We gotta go. And when the dragon saw that he'd been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who'd given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness. If you're Jewish and you're reading this, what does this immediately give you a picture of? Ah, I brought you out of Egypt on 
eagle's wings. So maybe it is Israel. Maybe the woman is Israel. I don't know. To the place where she's to be nourished for a time and times and a half a time. What is that? Three and a half. It's three and a half. The serpent poured out water like a river out of its mouth. Uh, after the woman to, to sweep her away with a flood, but the earth came to, to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river like the dragon had, that the dragon had poured out of its mouth. And then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. Okay, wait, so it's not just one kid. This woman has a lots of kids. Um, who's that, by the way? Regardless of the metaphor, who's the other offspring? Say us. Sorry, it wasn't a trick question. It's us. It's them in that day. They're reading it as if it, they're saying to themselves, it's us. We can say today, it's us. On those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus, and he stood on the sand of the sea. Here's the thing as I work through this and we start talking about how important it is to be faithful in how God has called you to live, whether it's in standing or running. If we sound like a broken record up here, it's because I'm doing my job. John keeps saying in the book of Revelation, we are in this cosmic conflict between powers that look like they're going to destroy you, crush you, and literally are killing you. And you'll be tempted to think that the way of the slain lamb doesn't work. What good is it if I'm dead? Your testimony of being faithful even to death is more powerful than your ability to swing a sword. And I'm telling you that as Pastor John is writing this letter, he's telling them don't give up because your obedient faithfulness is what God is going to use to destroy the works of the devil. It has always been what God has done. Think about, I'll give you one example. Um, David and Goliath. Um, the, the Bible says that Goliath is how tall? Don't say nine feet. Don't say it. It's not what the Bible says. Six cubits. We're like, how tall is that? That's not the point. The number's what matters. He might have only been 5'5". Five five. We're trying to make a point. Six cubits tall. He had a spearhead that weighed how much? Six shekels. And he had a brother or he himself, we don't know, it's a, the translation's a little bit difficult, um, that had six fingers. So when a reader reads this, they look at Goliath and say, six, six, six. And he has armor like what? 
scales. What does David do? He takes a stone and crushes his head. So I say that because is Genesis 3.15, this strike at his heel, crush his head, is that Jesus? Yes, absolutely, without question, it's Jesus, but it's also bigger than that. Paul even says in Romans, the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. The Jews have always taught that Genesis 3.15 is fulfilled when we walk in faithfulness. Think about it this way. Because when we walk, as we're walking, if the snake's in the grass and tries to snack, strike at our heel, we crush his head because we're walking. You will not crush his head by standing still. We don't even know when the snake will strike. What we have to know is we have to always be walking in our faith so that when he does, I can crush him. We have to walk in faithfulness to whatever God wants. Stand and die, run and preserve. I don't get to pick it. Whatever God wants. Because as we do, God uses that walk to conquer the works of Satan in the world. And what have we talked about every single week in every single chapter of Revelation? John is saying, you have to not give up. You have to persevere. You have to overcome. If you endure, it will work. And what I can tell you is, it worked. There are a lot of theories about how Rome fell. Um, there's a lot of them. The, from good ones to just absolutely ridiculous ones. Some people said it was water. As a church historian, I can tell you that Rome failed because there was a group in the early church that refused to give up their faithful obedience. And they walked in obedience year after year after bloody year. They refused to give up and say, it is not working. They kept walking. And if they were called to stay, they stayed and held the line. And it, and it was hard. And I'm sure that some of the people gave up. But a large group of the people said, we're going to bear testimony to Christ by following the way of the slain lamb. I will lay my life down as a way to determine for the whole world who I believe my God is. There were some who ran, and they ran and preserved the faith, and it was hard, and it wasn't free of persecution, and they were still butchered at times, but they endured. And now, we sit on the shoulders of their faithfulness, and we can say with confidence where is Rome? This thing that was so big and tough and strong and powerful and uh, empire. Where's Rome? Yeah. 
It's nothing today, but the way of the slain lamb still stands strong. I have some implications for us today. Um, so our communion team is going to go back and grab the elements. And if you're new with us, uh, we take communion together every week. We have an open table. That means anybody who's willing to say Jesus is the Lord of their life is invited to take communion with us. But we want you to hold the elements till the end and we'll take them all together. While they're passing that out, I want to work through a few implications. Only three today. I know, I'm getting soft in my old age. <laughs> Implication number one. God has always chosen to partner with the faithfulness of his people. Let me expand on that and say this. I think it's a terrible idea that he does this. Uh, the, the, the ancient rabbis told a story, um, and this is recorded, uh, that Messiah comes down to earth and he picks some, a few people and he invests in them. And then actually he's killed and then 40 days later he ascends back up into heaven. And um, he... He goes and he's telling all the angels about all this stuff that he did and all these miracles that happened. The angels are like, wow. And he's like, and then uh, I was killed and I rose from the dead and, and then I, I, came, I came back up here and I gave it to them to carry forward. And the angels are like, what's plan B? And Messiah says, I'm sorry, but there is no other story. I don't know why God chose to use us, but he did. Like the way that all of this plays out for so many people around us hinges on our capacity to be faithful to what God wants, regardless of what I want. that I would lay down my own wants and desires for the purpose of telling a particular story about who my God is, is more valuable, even to the point of being killed for it, it's more valuable than anything else we could hold to. Implication number two, however we choose to respond to evil, we must do that in the context of community. And I, and I want to say this really, really clearly. None of us are strong enough to endure well on our own. And I know that for some of us in the room, you're like, I think I could probably do it. Now, history tells you that, that, that you're fooling yourself. We are not capable of enduring well on our own. We need a community. This is one of the reasons why life groups is so important. It's one of the reasons why we have life groups because we need to have connections with people who are gonna together, we're gonna endure well. You can't do it on your own. 
Whether you're called to stand and die or you're called to run and preserve, either way, I have to have a community because both of those have their own set of difficulties. Implication number three. Our job is to partner with God in overcoming evil by walking in faithfulness. We overcome evil by walking in faithfulness. Let me say this again. We overcome evil by walking in faithfulness. We don't overcome evil by knocking it out. And we're also ready to fight. Like, I want to fight. I'm going to go out in the world and find the wrong people and fight them. Which I would just offer, first of all, they're not the enemy. And secondly, we don't win that way. We win by walking in faithfulness, regardless of where that takes us. It's about living faithful to what God wants in my life. So as we enter our communion time this morning, I would just ask you to wrestle with this question. Where have you not been faithful? Where are we not living in a faithful way? Let's talk with the Lord about that as we get our hearts right to take communion together. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. So whenever you eat this bread, do it in remembrance of me. Let's remember him together this morning. And then after the dinner, he took a cup and he said, this cup is the blood of the covenant, which is shed for you. So whenever you drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for the call to live in your desires for our life, believing that they're not just right, but they're better than anything we can come up with on our own. Lord, that creates tremendous heartache and sacrifice sometimes, and yet you are worthy. You are worthy of all of our heart, of all of our soul, and all of our mind. Lord, help us to be more like you in Jesus' name. Amen.